Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 560 of the podcast and it is Friday the 25th of June 2021 as I record this. Yes, the end of the sixth month, we are halfway through the year. Just a reminder to revisit your creative goals and get cracking for the second half. And I'm talking to myself, obviously. In today's show, I'm talking about writing humour with Scott Dickers, co-founder of The Onion, and author of books like How to Write Funny and How to Write Funny Characters and more. We talk about writing humour, but we also talk about Scott's career and the things he had to do to make comedy work out for the long term, as well as the mistakes he made, particularly a big one around signing a contract, (laughs) which we always like to talk about on this show as well as the importance of multiple streams of income. So it's definitely a mindset and business episode as well as craft. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing news, Drafter Digital announces distribution to BorrowBox. BorrowBox is an app that provides library patrons in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand and the UK with access to an ever-growing collection of e-books. The service is owned by Belinda, a trusted provider of ebooks, large print and audiobooks. And this is a great opportunity for Australia, Australian and New Zealand authors to reach their local libraries and, of course, also New Zealand, Ireland, UK. And it gives authors worldwide a new and eager market of English reading readers. So I'm excited about this. I'm always loving getting books into libraries. Remember, you can get my books in libraries, ebook, audio and um, print if you ask it to be ordered in or you should be able to get it in your library app just log in to if you want to do the drafter digital log into drafter digital and there's a little pop-up that will say do you want to add your books to borrow box and i just said yes please please add all my books to borrow box so all very exciting and it's always another reminder that i've never heard of borrow box i'm like i don't know who that is uh, but lots of people using lots of different apps all over the world that you may have never heard of and you might not use yourself but it's always a way to reach new readers so that's exciting Then in something that is uh, kind of broader ramifications, legal things, but after a year of investigation, the US House Judiciary Committee has introduced multiple bills that would potentially break up big tech giants like Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google, or that it's not really like those, those are the big companies, (laughs) in order to stop anti-competitive practices like buying up and killing the competition or launching their own products which take precedence over others. So I've mentioned this a couple of uh, times in the past few years, particularly when Elizabeth Warren uh, in the US was um, running and she was talking about you can't own the store and play in the store. And that seems to be one of the bills that's going through. Now, there's a few articles. Politico has an article, but a very good podcast, since you're listening on the podcast, a good podcast overview is Kara Swisher's podcast, Sway. Now, Kara is, um, you know, well-known reporter in the tech industry. Her podcast is often very, very interesting. But this one from the 17th of June, 2021, uh, the interview is, is this the big tech breakup we've been waiting for? And they go into the specific discussion of Amazon under one of the bills, which essentially tackles that problem. You can't own the store and have goods in the store. So, you know, Amazon has Amazon stores, amazon.com and .co.uk and all that. But they also have publishing company. They also own KDP and all these different things. And um, many of the examples are even things like suitcases. I was listening to an example, uh, you know, when Amazon sees that a particular product is doing well, they might launch their own product, which then goes into competition with the one that was previously selling well. So this type of thing is what these uh, bills go after. I think that Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO has a lot to do with all of this stuff which is coming. I don't think Jeff wants to be involved with that. He just wants to do his rocket launches. (laughs) But Andy Jassy, who is now the CEO, um, who built AWS, which is the huge tech part of the business, 
you know, think about, we don't know that much about Andy Jassy, but think about you, if you were running the massive conglomeration, which is Amazon, which bits would you divest? And I, I kind of have this feeling that perhaps if I was in charge of it all, I would divest before being forced into it by someone else. Like I would want control of my own destiny and I'd want to sort out the company that I'm responsible for. So I, I think it's interesting because even it, these bills, they are very unlikely, they're just not going to go through in the way that they're, they are now. But there's a move in this direction. So I think maybe some companies are going to do things in advance of stuff becoming legal. But um, Chris Rush also has an article about this, uh, about the potential ramifications, reflecting particularly on the impact uh, if you are exclusive, what would happen if Amazon divested or even shut down some of the lines of business we depend on. Now, I, I would prefer to think that they'd probably be spun off or sold to other companies. For example, I've always thought that Amazon Publishing or APUB would be bought by one of the big publishing companies at some point. It is essentially a publishing entity. So I would expect that, you know, that or or perhaps something like Amazon Media, where they have studios and publishing and music and KDP and all the content might go into one bucket and then the infrastructure might go into another bucket. But, you know, my crystal ball is cloudy on this. We can never know what is going to happen. But there is bipartisan support for breaking up big tech. And since Republicans and Democrats don't seem to agree on very much, they have um, broken these bills into a number of smaller bills. So it's not one mega bill. It's I think it's five separate bills. So some of them might get through or some of them might get adjusted. And um, but yeah, as I said, I think potentially if, if I was running things, I'd be looking at it going, right, well, how do we head this off? But on the other side of things, maybe nothing. Well, nothing Nothing is not the thing that will happen. Something's going to happen because nothing stays the same. You might have noticed this. But uh, these companies are incredibly important to general public, like for me and you, not just because we're authors, but as um, people living in a digital world, especially in the pandemic, there's been a lot of goodwill towards these companies. And they've proved their worth. Absolutely. I also think since they're so critical to the US economy at a time when China continues to expand, I would expect, you know, there to also be a push to keep these companies making so much money because the economy also depends on that kind of thing. So, yeah, change is inevitable. So what do we do about this kind of thing? Well, as ever, this is a, a awareness situation. Chris recommends Focus on promotions outside of Amazon. Learn how to be a business person without Amazon. So when the Amazon ecosystem changes, and it will, but we don't know the timing, you will be prepared. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, even those of us who publish wide, like me, we are very, we love Amazon. We want it to do well and want to be prepared for it to change. So personally, I think the all you need to do, all, <laughs> I say all you need to do, <laughs> Your focus should be keep creating. Obviously, we're always creating and building our intellectual property. Don't sign contracts that uh, will take away opportunities in the future. And uh, Scott Dickers in this interview talks about a contract he signed that basically may well have cost him millions. And I mentioned before the Hollywood versus the author uh, book, which are audio book that I'm listening to, still listening to it, you know, in bits and bobs. And that's the same. And um, uh, I'm going through getting my audiobooks out right now out of exclusivity and going wide with them. And again, we all sign these contracts and sometimes they stop us doing things and stop us from taking advantage of new opportunities. Obviously, build your email list because you want to be able to reach readers even if the platform has changed or shut down. And for me, I want to focus more and more on selling direct and more on that next week, which I'll be talking about. And of course, you need to be wide with your books to sell direct. You, um, you know, you can't have your books in KU and sell them from your website. So yeah, I think these are some interesting things to be aware of. But similar to, you know, talking about AI, talking about NFTs and blockchain and all these different things, digital currency, the world is going to be quite different by 2030. But that doesn't mean you need to think that it's all happening next week. Um, in fact, Jonathan and I were talking about this, about one of the biggest lessons in everything is that you don't need to act right now. You actually just waiting might be a better idea. <laughs> Something I struggle to learn. 
So um, on other things, the Six Figure Authors podcast had a good discussion on whether you can really make passive income as an author, which I think is a total myth, uh, you know, making passive income on anything, to be honest. Uh, I did property investment, which some called passive income and totally wasn't. Um, and also, and they talk about in the show what you need to do to keep things selling when you have a backlist and why you need to think of your long term career as a business you need to nurture and keep working on rather than a lottery ticket that will bring one big payout. And I th- I have actually said to Jonathan, you know, if anything happened to me, I if he did nothing, I think it would take about two years for my sales to disappear almost completely because people would still occasionally think of me or they'll find my books because of keywords or, you know, if I stopped podcasting, if I stopped putting stuff into the world, <laughs> i.e. if I died, <laughs> then... Um, you know, people would still find some of my work. But if you want it to, if you want the income to to stay up or continue growing, then you have to do something to keep it moving. Uh, So they do talk about, and Lindsay particularly talks about the importance of putting money away into other things like investments. Obviously, I'm not a financial or legal advisor, but this is exactly what I think. The And it's still, these things are not passive. You still have to manage your investments. But uh, I funnel as much as possible into my pension and my ISAs. I have a self-invested pension, a SIP here in the UK, and my ISAs, which are like the um, US IRAs and tax-efficient saving and investment wrappers, which are called different things in different countries. So obviously I can't talk to your situation, but this is very important, is funneling money into places where you can use it later when you want to potentially change your focus. Now, I think I want to keep writing for the rest of my life, but it's very good to have other income streams that might be less work. (laughs) If you don't know enough about these things, I do have a list of money books, thecreativepen.com forward slash money books, and uh, links in the show notes as ever, but that includes books that focus on the US, the UK, Canada and Australia mostly, but the principles apply to pretty much every country. So in personal things, I'm essentially in first draft mode, working on what is now called Tomb of Relics, Arcane Thriller Book 12 in the mornings and The Relaxed Author, which I'm co-writing with Mark Leslie Lefebvre in the afternoons. And I want obviously doing all the admin and other stuff in between. Now, I want to have both drafts finished by the end of July. So that's my uh, my goal now. And it feels good to be back in the sort of creating zone as the circle of, of uh, creativity turns again. We go through these different phases of books and projects. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it at the moment. On other personal things, the most recent interview on my books and travel podcast is with Ginny Reddy on her book, Wonderland, A Search for Magic in the Landscape, an insight into the more spiritual side of travel and an interesting take on travel memoir and something I found in my own life. There are times and places where the veil is thin. And if you read my arcane novels, and in fact, any of my novels, I often write about this, places where it feels like there is more than just this physical world. And so if you'd like a very different form of escape and a very different kind of discussion than I have on this show, head on over to the Books and Travel podcast, which is on whichever app you're listening to this on. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Just a couple. Um, first of all, thanks to Stephen, who corrected me from last week's show. I um, I think I said Tim Berners-Lee created the internet. And Stephen said, no, the internet is older than you think. Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web, not the internet. Big difference. <laughs> so yes thanks for that Stephen for correcting me and of course you're always welcome to email me or tweet me at the creative pen and correct me Uh, a lot of this is just my opinion and of course I always try and include in the show notes things to back up what I'm saying but uh, of course I get things wrong just as much as anyone And thanks to Kaz, who says, I'm catching up to the creative pen while in Nairobi after having missed three episodes. I normally listen in from Kampala. Like Jessica, and this was on the uh, Jessica Bell episode, I'm a musician and composer and I'm slowly breaking into writing. This podcast has been one of the best resources in my journey taking baby steps into writing. Thank you. Thank you, Kaz. And uh, thanks to everyone who emails or tweets um, or leaves a comment on the show notes so please do 
So today's show is sponsored by findawayvoices.com, which I use to make my audiobooks wide on 42 different platforms, including library systems. Your audio will still be available in the big stores like Audible and Apple Books that everyone's heard of, but also gets you into libraries so listeners can borrow your audiobooks for free and you still get paid, which is amazing, as well as other stores like Google Play, Storytel, which has a massive market share, and is now partnering with Spotify, so that's exciting. Also, Kobo and Nook Audio, Scribd, Overdrive, Hoopla, and yes, lots and lots of retailers that you can get into. As I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people listening and reading on apps that you don't necessarily use yourself, and you can reach people through being wide. Now, one of the great things also about Findaway is the distribution to Chirp, which is BookBub's audio service, enabling you to easily reach audiobook listeners with your books and do ads to them. And uh, you can do featured deals on Chirp. And I've had my best month of audiobook income when I had a Chirp promotion, which is becoming an even better way to discover and sell audiobooks. And you can only use it if you control your price, which you do if you publish through Findaway. So how does it work? Well, you can choose to upload your own files for distribution, which is what I do for my non-fiction books. Or you can use Findaway's help to match you with a narrator, which I I did for my Mapwalker series and the experience was excellent. I filled in a form about my book and preferences, for example, British female voice, and they sent a whole load of samples for me to listen to, which cut down the, I mean, of course, you can find a narrator on your own. You can go through and listen to lots and lots of books in the genre and find a voice you like. But having a short list really, really helped me. Life is too short for me to spend <laughs> all that time. So uh, I found the wonderful, or they helped me find the wonderful Charlie Sanderson. And now those books are out as separate books and and as a box set and on all the platforms and I sell them direct and everything's fantastic. Now, I did mention earlier that I'm pulling off my royalty share deals from ACX and going wide with all those books through Findaway. Now, it is painful to start again if you are uh, in that situation. But if you think about it, our intellectual property lasts for our lifetime and 50 to 70 years after you die, depending on your jurisdiction. So yes, there's a bit of short-term pain, but the long-term gain is massive in that I can take control of my backlist. I can take control of my pricing, take advantage of new opportunities and all these different vendors. And the audio space is only expanding. There are new things all the time emerging. So you guys know that I only work with podcast sponsors who I actively use and can ethically promote myself. I love Findaway. I'm a super fan. Uh, I use it now for almost all my audiobooks and hopefully it will soon be all of them. <laughs> so take back your audio freedom. Check out findawayvoices.com today. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks, including Anna Cabral, Sheila Lamb and Gary. Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon who has done for months and years. You're all fantastic. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars or euros or pounds or Canadian dollars a month or um, a couple more dollars if you're feeling generous and you will get the Q&A audio, which I do monthly. And in fact, today I put up a little uh, bonus. I put up some uh, screenshots of um, Pseudorite, of my Pseudorite um, working screens so people could see what Pseudorite, uh, what I was doing on Pseudorite. So uh, I do put up these sort of extras on uh, for patrons as well, because uh, you guys, uh, just your support is so important to me. So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Scott Dickers is the number one New York Times bestselling author of nonfiction books, including How to Write Funny, How to Write Funny Characters, and Outrageous Marketing, as well as other nonfiction, fiction, and satire. He co-founded The Onion satirical news site, and he's a podcaster, screenwriter, cartoonist, voice actor, speaker, and teacher of comedy writing. Welcome, Scott. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Joanna. How do I, how can I possibly fit all those things into my life? I <laughs> You're know. Wonder how <laughs> I, I got here. That, that might be one of my questions, but let's, um, <laughs> let's start. Um, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into all of this, like your creative journey. Sure. So it started very young before I could read or write. I 
think I figured out that being funny was a way to get love and attention. And so I, I started doing things. I started acting funny and drawing things that were funny and showing them to like my grandma and she loved it. And I got that thing that comedians always talk about where they first performed on stage and got a laugh and they, they heard it and they were like, Oh my God, that felt amazing. I know what I need to do with my life happened to me when I was like three or four. So uh, what you do then is you keep doing it because it's now your strategy for living. So I made little skits on tape recorders and I made little plays and I wrote little books. I stapled together pieces of paper and wrote funny stories and any kind of entertainment, comedy, anything I could possibly think of did that throughout my you know, early life in school. I was the class clown and all that. And then by the time I'm like, getting out of high school, I know I need to do this for a career somehow. I just had no idea how to do that. My family didn't really have any connections. They didn't have any money. We lived in the middle of nowhere. There was no internet, so you couldn't look up how to do this stuff. And so that's kind of where it all started. But by that time, like, if you believe that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, I was an expert, but I will say my comedy was still terrible at that time. <laughs> I was not funny <laughs> at, at, you know, 18 or whatever. And it took a lot more practice to get good at it. And then how did you go from being an amateur to founding, co-founding The Onion? I think a lot of people would have heard of The Onion and then obviously you do all these other things. So like, did you ever have a normal job or did you, did you create yeah. this sort of different things? No, I had some normal jobs. I worked at McDonald's fresh out of high school and I did a lot of temp work and I worked at a radio station and my focus was always on the comedy. So Every spare moment, I was making comedy movies, writing comedy books, drawing comic strips, doing voice acting. And so, but I always had these sort of easy fallback jobs, minimum wage, whatever. And so the first thing I got into was voice acting. I just sent a demo tape, you know, because I had done all these skits on cassette tape as a kid and had gotten pretty good at it and put together a demo tape, sent it to a local studio in Wisconsin, and they... They said, oh, I, we could use an 18-year-old teenage kid for some ads. And so they started using me. And then that career kind of blossomed. I got jobs doing cartoons and commercials. And I was, I was actually on Saturday Night Live. They, they did this um, TV Funhouse cartoon where I did the voice of George W. Bush. And that was very interesting. I did video games. And so then the but I was still doing all this other comedy. So then I did a comic strip and kept sending comic strips to newspapers and syndicates trying to get published, having no luck for years. And then finally got a comic strip in the college newspaper where I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. And that took off and became really popular. And so now I kind of had the second comedy career or entertainment career in cartooning and that became really lucrative because I started self-syndicating the comic strip to other newspapers and I sold t-shirts with the characters on them and made a fortune selling t-shirts. And there was something about these, this character, uh, the comic strip was called Jim's journal. It was just a stick figure character, but people loved it. And you would see people wearing these t-shirts all over campus. And then I sold them at the other campuses where the comic strip ran. And then I put out a book of the, comic, a collection of the first year or two. And that made the New York Times bestseller list, even though I self-published wow. that book before wow. before Amazon or anything. I figured out how to get the UPC symbol and I had to order away for that. And I had to drive the paste up boards to a printer. I mean, it was very primitive. And so that was pretty amazing. And then I got a major publishing deal because they noticed me on the bestseller list. And so then these two guys around Madison, Wisconsin, approached me because they wanted to start a humor magazine and I was super impressed with them. And as you can tell from my story so far, I was absolutely obsessed with doing anything comedy related. So I thought that sounds like, like a great idea, like something like mad magazine or national lampoon, let's do it. And I jumped in with them and we started doing the onion and that took about eight years of putting it out weekly as a newspaper before anyone noticed it. 
<laughs> yeah. So it was about the mid nineties by the time the internet came along and we put the newspaper on a website and I, we were the very first humor website and it was, so we were kind of the only game in town for a while and grew pretty quickly after that. Mm. And we did a book and that became a big number one New York times bestseller, our first book, which was called our dumb century. And it was a look back at the 20th century through fake front pages of the onion. <laughs> and that led to other books and blah, 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 blah. So yeah, that's the kind of how that all happened. Well, I, I love your story because as you said, like you worked in McDonald's and these sort of minimum wage things in order to pursue the thing you always wanted to do, which was comedy. And yet, you have done so many things. I love that you have all of these multiple streams of income and you tr you've tried so many things and some really worked and some took years to work. And I think this is a great lesson for people listening. And for me, like for me too, I feel like I've been doing writing and self-publishing for almost 15 years and it, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely takes time, right? To turn Absolutely. And you know, I've had some into something. Yeah, I've had some spectacular failures too. Ooh, so tell us about some of those. Like, <laughs> yeah, so let's see. One of the biggest ones had to do with that that t-shirt contract. So I, I signed a deal with this local t-shirt shop in Madison, Wisconsin to sell those t-shirts. And I did make a lot of money at it. But when I sold my books to a major publisher, it was Universal Press Syndicate. They're like the biggest best publisher of cartoon books in the world. They do the Calvin and Hobbes, the far side, every, you know, they're the top and they wanted my rights for merchandise so they could sell them nationally, internationally. The, the little rinky dink person I was with just could barely get my stuff in these other campuses where the comic strip ran. And so I probably lost millions of dollars by not being able to get out of the contract with that t-shirt shop. Ooh. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't even read it. I just signed it. And it was literally a 10-year contract that automatically renewed after the first term. So that was a big mistake. And then I, I started an animation company in the mid-2000s to make animated cartoons. And that was a spectacular disaster because I didn't realize, I didn't do enough research before going into it. I love making cartoons. I love making animated cartoons and we made some great stuff, but I quickly realized the only way that you can really survive in that business is to do advertising stuff, which I wasn't really interested in. And pretty soon I was spending all my time just doing stuff for ads and I had no time to do the stuff I wanted to do for fun. And I was hoping that that could be like outsourced and I could step back but it was so labor intensive and, and the advertisers demanded that I be involved in all the projects because I was kind of like the creative force behind the whole thing. They didn't want some lackey, you know, heading mm. up any creativity that they wanted for their ads. And so it was a break-even proposition that, that meant I had to constantly be working on something I hated. <laughs> and it was really awful. So... Uh, well, those are brilliant things you got wrong. Signing a contract that locked you in because you didn't think that you would be someone within that decade. So you signed a contract just thinking you would be nobody really just making these small yeah. t-shirts and then right. hit it big, but you had signed your way out of being able to do the bigger thing. So that, yeah. that is a great lesson. And a lot of people listening have signed contracts that lock them in. <laughs> I'm sure. Sometimes for the term of copyright. <laughs> Ooh, that's brutal. It is brutal. Well, I, I I reckon I could explore your career for the whole interview, but we need to talk about writing humor. So yeah. let's get let's get into that. So okay, I definitely struggle with this, and I know people listening do. And even as you said, like you started really young, but you still said you weren't funny when you hit like 18. So let's start with why is writing humor so difficult? And what are some of the things that authors get wrong when they try to write humor in particular? Yeah, great question. There's a few things. So the first thing is, humor requires originality. So in almost any other genre, there's kind of a set list of things that work. You know, in horror, you need a monster or you need a scary person and they jump out at you or there's suspense like, oh my God, is this person going to get killed or not? But in humor, 
you can't go to some stock list of things that always work because if you do, you're just doing cliches. And so it is absolutely the hardest type of writing. And the other thing that makes it difficult besides that is that everyone thinks they can do it. Everyone thinks it's easy because either they're funny or they've made someone laugh before, or they figure "Ah, it's, it's humor. It's just, you know, I just got to be a little light and have fun and it'll work. And obviously that's not true because if it were easy, then everybody would be Tina Fey. So the, the real trick for me was feedback. So it's about understanding the importance of the audience because with humor, it only works if it's funny and you only know if it's going to be funny if an audience finds it funny. So we all have our own individual senses of humor and sometimes those are really weird and we can't rely on that. And we also can't rely on just like the one person who likes us, our partner, our roommate, our mom, whatever, who's going to read our stuff and say, Oh, I think it's hilarious, you know, and then we go out with it and nobody else likes it. You have to have a more scientific process and stand-up comedians know this because they go out and they they do their stuff on stage to a bunch of strangers. And that's like kind of the ultimate arbiter of what works. If you can make that group laugh, you've got something that works. So it's a matter of recreating that in writing. And, you know, I have a great feedback group that I use. And there we're in a Facebook group together that I, I run everything by. Because even now, like, I've been doing comedy for... 50 years, I still need that feedback because you still, you don't really know for sure if something's going to work until an audience tells you it's going to work. And professionals know this too. On any professional comedy show or any, you know, humor novelist who's got a ton of experience, they have to show their stuff to the head writer, the editor, whatever, and they have to let them know, okay, this is working or nah, this isn't working. And it sometimes can get even harder when you get kind of well known for it because then people expect you to just nail it without going through that process of getting feedback and improving it. They figure, Oh, he's a genius. He'll just nail it. And then that person has a big ego. So they figure, I don't need feedback. I'm just going to make this. And so they produce something terrible. It's just fraught with so many pitfalls, (laughs) the whole Mm. humor sphere, you know? Yeah. And even in the writing, I mean, I guess if you're in, in a, stand-up situation you can see people's responses quite quickly whereas with with writing you don't have a choice to pause and then give a delivery or or adjust depending on what you see in front of you you've kind of fixed it 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 makes it so difficult yeah that that's one of the really tricky parts about the prose medium is that it's not only do you not hear or see the audience's immediate reaction but you don't know them. You don't know who they are. You don't know where or how they're reading it. So you have no control. Comedy is all about control. You have to control the audience's perspective, control their experience and manage their expectations as much as humanly possible. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book, How to Write Funny, was because I knew that prose was the most difficult First of all, humor is the most difficult type of writing, and prose is the most difficult medium to do it in. And I'd done it for so many years at The Onion, and I've, I felt like I really figured it out. Uh, be, getting, uh, getting ahead of the game and getting ahead of the eight ball with the, the audience and controlling the context, controlling their experience as much as possible is really the key. Because, like I said, you can't know how they're perceiving it. And because you have so little control, you just have to scrape and fake it as much as you can to control that context. And I'll give you a little hint with an example of how The Onion does that. So The Onion is in the format of a fake newspaper. And that's very deliberate because a newspaper is a very serious, important platform. And so that creates excellent context for comedy because it's like, oh, you're not supposed to laugh. This is very important. It's very serious. So it gives you that straight person that all comedy needs. And the same thing would be true in a a novel where you're trying to do humor. You can't just do fluffy, silly humor. You have to have some gravitas, some straight person to contrast with the funny stuff. 
So I'll give you an example of that. So any kind of serious book that just needs a touch of humor, that's pretty easy because you've got a lot of serious stuff going on. But if you're doing a silly, wacky book, where do you find the straight person? Well, a great example is Douglas Adams with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There really isn't a serious moment in, in, in that story. It's all just goofiness and wackiness. But he has gravitas in the scale of what's happening. The earth is exploding. You know, a guy is taken into outer space totally, you know, unpredictably. And that provides the gravitas where you can now have contrast and introduce small, silly, light things that create that uh, irony that you need for comedy to work. No, I think that that is really interesting. And I, I definitely think we are advised in writing to make sure that every story beat is not deep and dark and having moments of humor or moments of of levity is is really important but i i certainly <laughs> i would i struggle with that myself it's something that i i guess i don't feel like i know anything funny or i can make anything funny so i did want to ask a sort of classic question which is where do you get your funny ideas and or can we turn any idea into something funny <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and my joke answer is, oh, I subscribe to Funny Ideas magazine. Yeah, <laughs> and any, all the funny ideas you need are right there. So, well, there's kind of two two ways to approach humor, and that is humor that's played straight and humor that's played for laughs. And when you're playing humor straight, you've got a serious thriller novel or a horror novel, and you just need a touch of humor. Then you have your straight man of the seriousness, and you can just introduce a light moment and almost any kind of light moment will do because the audience is thirsting for some levity. And it's, I find that to be pretty easy to drop that in, you know, a self deprecating comment from a character or a silly little thing to contrast with the big things that are happening so forth. The other kind is a little more difficult where it's like a light touch and it's played for laughs. So the way that you get ideas from that and the way that you can make any idea funny is pretty simple. I lay it out in, in my book, but it starts with subtext. So every joke, every funny line has to have subtext. It has to have some hidden meaning that you're communicating through the joke, but that you're not actually saying. That's what you get when you get a joke, you get the subtext. So if somebody doesn't get a joke, and someone else explains it to them, they're saying what the subtext is. They're saying, oh, don't you get it? She hates him. Or, oh, don't you get it? Politicians are greedy and corrupted. You know, to words that are not anywhere in the joke. So the way you make a joke, and the way you can make a joke about anything is, we all have opinions. We all think things. So all we have to do is write down what our opinions are on any subject. If you're writing a book, you write down what your opinion is of what's happening in the book. And then you take that subtext and you run it through this meat grinder that I call the funny filters. There's 11 of them. So there's 11 different ways that you can make something funny. And you can use one or more, the more the better usually, but you don't want it to be too complicated. You want it to be very accessible and gettable. But when that subtext goes through the funny filters, it comes out the other end, funny. So those funny filters are, I'm not going to go through all 11, no, but just I'll just give, give us, you some give us one highlights. Yeah, mm. so I mentioned irony a moment ago. That's one of them, irony. Irony is where the intended meaning is the opposite of the literal meaning. So whatever your opinion is, you state the opposite. And that can often be very funny, especially if it's played straight. Another one that I think we all know is hyperbole. That's where you take your opinion and you exaggerate it to an absurd or impossible extreme. That makes it funny. So I'll give you one more. One a more complicated one is misplaced focus, where you take your opinion and instead of focusing directly on the opinion, you focus on something else that's unimportant or silly that makes you think of the main opinion. That's how misplaced focus works. Mm. Do you know, I think this is so interesting because what you're talking about, and, and obviously I've had a look at your books and 
there's a lot of work in this. And I, I almost feel like people think, oh, if you're funny, you just wake up in the morning and you just write stuff and it's funny and you say stuff and it's funny. But you're even almost talking about it in the sort of scientific workman like way where you have to work on being funny. <laughs> it, it, surprisingly, it does not come easy. So there, there are some people who do have that, but I don't count on that. Like I never had that. I had to work at it. And most of the writers I know also still have to work about it. Now, they, they might be funny and be confident and sit down and churn out stuff that could be pretty funny, but it's not all going to work. Like, they still have to go through that process of testing it with an audience and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's – and also, those anyone who's in that place – where they're, they seem naturally funny, they can just churn out funny stuff. They worked to get there. Like they practiced for years at doing what I'm talking about. So they've internalized that process of having an opinion and then filtering it through the funny filters and coming out with a joke. So they don't think about it like that, like a science. But every comedy writer, humor writer that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot, like on my podcast and just in my life, really digging into this, they they all say oh yeah it's a science it's a it's a there's a formula and it we all use the same formula that's basically how how it works no matter what kind of humor you're writing and no matter what medium you're doing it in mm. which is exactly the same as writing a book in general you know you, you it's not that magic streams onto the page and you've got a perfect book first time we all have to work at our craft so exactly. actually what you're saying is quite encouraging uh to me i i feel like <laughs> my brother has actually just arrived he, he's he's we've just come out of lockdown and here in the uk and i haven't seen him for months and he's oh. funny you know he's the funny one in our it's just you know he, him and me um from my my parents marriage and he's the funny one so i've always felt not funny and that I can't be funny you know he can effortlessly make people laugh and so I feel like I've got a bit of a mindset block around f being funny so I guess I'm asking for tips can people like me who feel like they are not funny can we relax and change our mindset around this type of thing and add these moments into our books or is it something you have to decide on and really work on as, as you have? Well, uh, I mean, a little of both. I definitely think anyone can do it because I've seen so many people who started with nothing, who just seem to have a tin ear for humor, really be passionate about wanting to do it and becoming really great at it, becoming comedy professionals. And I guess it's, I think of it a little bit different doing it in writing versus doing it in person because in writing, it is really a craft, and it's about crafting jokes, writing a lot of them, and then sifting through those to, to pick out the best ones, vetting them with some kind of feedback group. Everybody has to do that. In person, obviously, you can't do that. You're off the cuff, and so on and so forth. The only trick there is confidence. So if you have confidence, you're going to be funny. It's just like the magic ingredient. And I think you know how confidence works. You basically fake it till you make it. So if you walk into a room and pretend you're funny, you're, you're going to say some things that are going to be funny and that are going to work because people naturally defer to and laugh at a person who has unstoppable confidence, mm. no, especially when they're trying to be funny. <laughs> yeah I think um being British I have a bit of self-deprecating humor you know sure. when, I, when I speak I think that that happens actually that is an interesting question is I mean you've talked about the importance of the audience obviously and I I love this because I feel like so many writers write for themselves first and think about an audience later but you're sort of talking about it has to be you have to have feedback and you have to think about the audience straight away but is there an issue in the sort of international times we live in where people will self-publish a book or you know publish a book and it will go out across the world whereas is humor a lot of humor culturally specific uh even within a culture I mean obviously you're in the US and you have some interesting politics over there as you obviously talk about yeah. on on the onion but do you have to be really specific about your audience in terms of culture and country and all of that 
No, it's it's absolutely universal, especially when you're dealing with human beings, you know, because we're all human beings and we all have the same foibles and our leaders have the same failings. So even if you're doing political satire, like I grew up on Monty Python and so they would do skits about local British politicians who I didn't know from Adam, but they made it universal because they were very smart and very careful about presenting them as basically, you know, uh, avatars for any kind of politician. And they, they had these basic politician characteristics that would work for the humor. So it didn't matter that I, I didn't know who they were. And I think that's the way it is for the way, you know, how any book that's trying to be funny can work in a different language. And like you mentioned that the self-deprecating, humor of the Brits. Like that's something I've noticed about you. Like, I think you're very funny, like in person. And it's surprising to me to hear you say that you don't think you're funny because <laughs> to you. me, you have a, a very light and self-deprecating and funny, easy way about you, the way you speak. And it's probably just a matter of confidence uh, either in person or also when you're writing because you, you write thrillers and stuff and that. So I think a lot of people who write more serious books or less like frivolous, silly books have a harder time thinking, well, I don't want to be silly or I don't want to, you know, destroy the the tone I've got going here or whatever. But obviously you've figured out that readers want levity here and there. And they, it's such a nice roller coaster ride to have a bit of tension and a bit of excitement and then have a bit of light touch and levity and silliness or whatever, maybe not as far as silliness, but at least humor and then getting back to the seriousness, you know? Mm. Well, it's interesting there. I mean, it, let's talk about characters because you do have a specific book on how to write funny characters. And I feel like there is a bit of danger in, I mean, you mentioned Monty Python and and I, I, I don't know whether it's quite dated now. I think it is pretty dated in terms of some real slapstick type of humor which is very difficult to do in a book as well because slapstick is kind of visual comedy but in how to write funny characters you have these 40 comedy character archetypes now that is a useful book people (laughs) but um could you just tell us about a couple of your favorites yeah absolutely so first of all, I do want to say, I think Monty Python is as relevant today as it was when it came out. Like Mm -hmm. they do a skit called election night special, which is a parody of election returns on a network uh, program. And you could watch that during any election and it would be totally relatable (laughs) and (laughs) hilarious. So, and so they use all 11 of the funny filters that I'm talking about. And one of those 11 funny filters is madcap, which is slapstick humor, silly humor, non sequitur humor. And you can absolutely do that in writing. And you should, because when you describe physical action, it's just as funny to the reader as a a performer slipping on a banana peel is to a viewer of a movie or TV show, because we're imagining it in our head. It's no less funny. In fact, it might even be funnier because we're picturing it in the funniest possible way when we do the word picture in our minds. You know what I mean? Mm. So, but let's use that same example for one of my favorite comedy characters among the 40 archetypes. And I did identify that there are 40 basic ones, which doesn't mean that somebody couldn't invent a new type of character, but it's always a risk to invent something new because so much of this has been done before. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. The only trick is when you use a comedy character archetype, you do have to make it original and fresh, which is really easy to do. And there's tricks and tips for that in the book. But one of my favorite archetypes is the bumbling authority. So that's a a character who's has some level of authority in society, usually pretty low level and they're a fool. So we see that all over the place. We see that in Lieutenant Frank Drebin, of police squad and the naked gun movies. We see it in uh, Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura, private detective, Paul Blart mall cop. Uh, Even Basil Fawlty is an example of that because he's like a a hotel owner. So he's a very minor authority in society. And 
there are so many other examples of that. Daffy Duck is an example of a bumbling authority. Ralph Cramden. The Onion is an example of a bumbling authority because it's a very serious and important voice of news, yet it's foolish. So that archetype people love because they love seeing authority figures brought down a peg mm. and it never gets tiresome. So again, the only trick is you have to make it original. And one, I'll just give you one easy tip on how to do that. If you just give the character a different type of job or a different species or gender that we haven't seen before or seen much, it'll seem strikingly original. It'll People will feel like, oh my God, this is such a fresh original character. And they won't realize it's, oh, it's just this model of this character that we've seen a million times before. So it's mm -hmm. actually pretty easy. Another one of the 11 funny filters is character. And there was a short section of it in my first book, How to Write Funny. And so many people were asking me about, wait a minute, how does that work? And you mentioned archetypes. So that's what resulted in this, this new book. It was like a whole book had to be written about just this one funny filter because there are specific ways that characters need to be used for comedy that's different than how they're used for drama. It's kind of like night and day, the way characters are treated. Characters in comedy really have to be kind of two-dimensional. They have to be representations of parts of us or different types of people in society, and they can't be taken seriously. So the trick then, if you're doing humor for a more serious work where you do have well-rounded characters, you have to do this thing that Steve Kaplan, this dramaturg who specializes in comedy, talks about where you drop the character. So you allow the character to be two-dimensional for one moment or one beat or one scene where we can laugh at them because they are now representing a part of us. Another archetype that I really like that's very popular is the grown-up child. That is an adult who behaves like a child. They react with far more emotion than a normal person would given the situation. They stomp their feet and they cry and they're, they're very immature. That's a character that Will Ferrell plays in almost every movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and people love it. People love this character because it kind of taps into the inner child in all of us. It allows us to laugh at it, yet also relate to it because it is a deep part of us. And so it's a really powerful comedic character. And you can use that character even for like a serious, if you're doing a serious book with a serious, well-rounded three-dimensional character, they can have one scene where they do something childish and it will be really funny because you're allowing that character to drop momentarily into that archetype. I was just thinking then, I was thinking about the funny characters. There are very few movies that my husband and I will both find funny. And mm. one of those is Tropic Thunder. <laughs> which still Tropic makes, Thunder, yeah. Which still just makes me laugh. And even now thinking about it, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. And But what they're all, they all have various aspects of funny character kind yes. of about themselves. And maybe each one is picking up an, an archetype uh, like they, the one who's like a method actor that they all just have these little things that they do and but it's funny because it is funny but that some of some of these movies work really well whereas I just don't like Ben Stiller's movies in general but I really liked that one and I don't know what it was about that movie that it actually made it funny to me and my husband for example. Yeah, interesting. So I did see that. It's been a while, but I, I I definitely remember each one of those characters having a clear archetype. And one way to make archetypes original is to mix and match, like combine them, make hybrids is another really amazing thing to do. So yeah, I remember distinctly uh, there was one character, I forget who it was, there's one character who was the bumbling authority archetype, somebody who's supposed to be very important, like an authority who's complete fool, you know, and then you probably had a grown up child in there. Mm. You probably had, yeah, it's, I'm totally spacing. I yeah, think I, I saw I that when it came out. No, no, it's okay. It's been like 15 years, I think, since that movie came out. Right. Clearly I, mean, I don't watch much comedy. Oh no, I understand. <laughs> but 
There was probably a, a neurotic, which is another very prominent archetype. Mm. And because that gives you such great contrast when they're having these like international adventures, these like military adventures, perfect contrast is to throw in a neurotic, somebody who's nervous or like a nerd archetype who's nervous and scared and, and creating, you know, wonderful contrast with all the serious stuff that's happening. Yeah, maybe that's the way forward. I think Melissa McCarthy in the in the US there sort of is doing a lot of movies at the moment, which were more traditionally male roles. Yeah, and she's she's now the funny one doing them. And again, like you said, even just changing gender can can make it, a big difference. The story makes been it done feel, before. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes you feel like it's fresh and original. She did that in Bridesmaids, which was kind of her breakout movie role. Yeah. Yeah. Where she plays the archetype of, she plays a hybrid archetype of the slob and the Lothario, which we always see those as male characters and Mm. to combine them and put them in a woman felt completely original. And so that was a big breakout for her. And then now everything she does, she does like that spy movie she did was Mm. she was a bumbling authority where she was like a, uh, a government bureaucrat, who had to be a spy. And then she's doing a ton of madcap humor throughout the movie where she's just goofing up and falling and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's great. That's a really good tip actually is to maybe for our, to find our own original humor is to think about movies or books that we do find funny and then identify why, you know, using how to write funny characters and your funny filters. Because I actually, I feel very encouraged by what you're saying because it means I can potentially deconstruct things and then reconstruct them in a way that will help my writing because I feel like this is a weak spot for me and I feel like a lot of people listening will feel this is a a weak spot Uh, and as you say I mean sometimes you just have to try these things don't you absolutely yeah I'm the guy in the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom I'm the bad guy in that movie who so after Indiana Jones went through the three tests at the end with the razor that almost cuts his head off. And then he goes on the the breath of God and the path of God and all that stuff. I'm the bad guy who snuck up behind him and deconstructed. Oh, I see. It's a roller and you, you just have to duck. And so the, the, all my books are is deconstructing humor, laying out exactly the steps for how to do it. And then you can recreate the magic by just going through those same steps. Mm. Well, that is fantastic. And then I did actually want to ask you about another one of your books. You've got lots of books, uh, I do. which is awesome. And you, you have a book called Outrageous Marketing, How to Build a Powerful Brand with No Marketing Budget. And I realize things have, have changed over your career in terms of marketing and book marketing. But I feel like this sort of bootstrapping approach is something that you've, it seems like you've always done and you've tried different things. But how would you uh, suggest authors do this now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing that that you suggest and almost any kind of expert that you would admire in this space would recommend. And that is keep doing it, keep putting out books, keep learning and enjoy the process because that's really the secret to success. I mean, the last part is so important. Enjoy the process. Like if you're miserable, why are you doing this? But if you like it and you're obsessed with it, so you just keep doing it, like you're, you're living the dream. You've won, you've succeeded because you're doing what you love and you need to accept that and celebrate that. So is financial success going to follow that? Well, probably if you keep it up long enough. And again, like you said before, it's, it's the long game. Sometimes it does take 10 years for people to get anywhere. But yeah, so in doing this book, I analyzed what I had done to make the onion a household name and make it a big comedy brand and compare that to other really successful companies in a lot of really different fields like healthcare and food service and so on and so forth. And I found the very same story. It was very surprising to me to compare the onion success with the success of the company Walgreens I, I am. Do you have Walgreens in the UK? We, we, ha- we, we don't, have. but it's a it's a pharmacy it's a chain, very huge pharmacy chain, and it started in the nineteen teens, very similar to the Onion. It was one guy, 
Charles Walgreens, who was obsessed with, with making things convenient for his customers. And he lived that and he enjoyed it. And so he kept doing it. And obviously there were some setbacks and failures, but he kept doing it. And then another one is Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders. He was obsessed with making good chicken. And that's what it often comes down to. It's one obsessive person who loves doing what they're doing, who keeps doing it. And that's kind of the secret to doing it without any kind of marketing budget. You become your own ambassador, your your own marketing. And that I mean, that's the the take-home message. People don't have to read the book now because that's the take-home <laughs> message of the book is that it really takes that kind of obsession. And I use that term outrageous because I realized one of the things that made a lot of these characters that I studied, including myself being in that clump, is they learned how to be the most outrageous version of themselves that they could. So a great example of that is Disney, who's one of the companies that I looked at, a company that was at one time the number one Fortune 500 company for many years, one of the top media companies in the world. And it all started with one guy being obsessed with making good quality children's entertainment. And so many setbacks, so so many hard times where his brother, who was his business partner, was begging for more loans from more banks so they could keep this foolish crusade going. And he was obsessed with making outrageous entertainment, but he had this epiphany where he was always zeroing in on, okay, what's more outrageous? What's the bigger version of me? What's more me than before? So he did Snow White, he did Dumbo, he did all these really popular movies, but they would make money and then they would stop making money. And so the company was always operating on fumes. And then he realized, oh, okay, maybe instead of just doing funny movies, funny TV shows, I can create a world, a bubble where people, kids can go in the bubble and be in the magic world that I'm showing them with their entertainment. That's like a sharpening, a, a zeroing in on, okay, what is the unique value proposition I'm offering? How can I make the most outrageous version of that? And so he creates Disneyland. And that becomes kind of the linchpin for the company to really build. It's now he's got an actual sustainable, repeatable source of income that, you know, is largely responsible for the company becoming as big as it did. And it was a foolhardy venture. He had to mortgage his own house to pay for the first theme park. But it's that principle of figuring out who you are and trying to be the most heightened version of that that you can, that is the secret sauce. Yeah. And I love that you gave those examples because it comes back to what we said about your career and the mistake you made about signing a contract without thinking how big you could be in 10 years time and so often people think oh I can't possibly be James Patterson or Stephen King and no we're never going to be that person but after years of putting in the work and years of writing books and like where you are now in your career is it's putting in the years of work and that persistence as well as taking opportunities as they come and also thinking yeah if I keep doing this for 20 30 40 50 years who knows where we're gonna be right right and it's so much of it is like a mindset game because we can all get depressed about someone who's more successful than us like I I I think Steven Spielberg is sitting around like grousing about, oh, that Disney was so much more successful than me, you know? (laughs) And so I'm a big believer in, I mean, self-doubt is such a huge problem with Mm. authors and people in comedy. And there are so many ways to get around that. But for me, one way has always been just to embrace who you are and embrace your own journey and to be happy with what you've achieved. Because I'm a huge believer in that hokey saying, shoot for the moon. And even if you miss, you're still among the stars. Mm -hmm. Because if you're obsessive and you work a lot, you produce a lot. Yeah, maybe you'll never be James Patterson, but you're you and you've done pretty well. So celebrate that and be happy about that. And there's a lot of people who didn't get that far, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'd so enjoyed talking to you. So where can people find your books and everything you do online? 
Yeah, delightful talking to you too, Joanna. I'm at howtowritefunny.com. I've got a ton of free resources there for people who want to get better at writing comedy, free eBooks, uh, and the podcast I do, which is interviews with comedy professionals from all parts of the, the business, all different media. And if you want to go deeper with me, there's my books, uh, which are all on Amazon and Audible. And if you want to go even deeper, I have courses on how to write humor and how to succeed at creating a comedy brand. And I'm on the regular social media. If you can spell my name, you can probably find me. Actually, you know what's great? Uh, now, even if you spell my name wrong, I show up on Google. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> that is great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Scott. That was fantastic. It was a delight. Thank you. So I hope you found the interview with Scott interesting, whether you write humour in your books or you just want to add some levity to your writing. And I really enjoyed talking to Scott and you could probably tell I definitely enjoyed that uh, discussion. And he's a great example of that long term creative career mindset, which we talk about so much. He has a podcast called How to Write Funny and it's conversations with various people in the comedy industry as well as books and courses. So definitely check those out. Next week, I'm talking to Jin Stevens about how her self-published book on intermittent fasting, Delay Don't Deny, kickstarted a movement and her own creative business. It's also a more personal show as I found intermittent fasting through Jin and her Intermittent Fasting Stories podcast. So I'm excited to talk about that next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.